Uh, tonight, if this is your first time with us, this is what we have, have covered thus far. Uh, we did just kind of an introduction class and observed some of the titles and names of Christ, and we saw how uh, Christ was anticipated. For There was a long history of anticipation of the Messiah. We looked at the person of Christ, his full deity, and his full and true humanity. We spent two classes on the atonement of Christ, and then last time we looked at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and we'll finish out our, our class uh, examining the offices of Christ. And it is difficult sometimes uh, in a class like this uh, to decide where to place things. So our, our topic tonight uh, was either going to go in the second class slot uh, or, or tonight, and I, I decided to, to wait until the end to, to present the offices of Christ. There were three major offices among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. The prophet, the priest, and the king. These three offices were distinct. The prophet spoke God's words to the people. He was God's designated spokesperson. A prophetic ministry in the Old Testament was not just a gifting. It was an office. It was a position. The priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and even praises to God on behalf of the people. He was the one who made those regular atonement sacrifices, and we've looked at the nature of those sacrifices. And then the king is the one who ruled over the people as God's God's representative. And all three of these offices were designated. They were set apart and known among the people. The people knew who a prophet was, who the anointed prophet was. They knew who the priests were. They certainly knew who the king was. These office holders were publicly declared, often through an anointing. This is why David wouldn't um, lay a hand on Saul, because he knew that Saul was God's anointed king in that time, and God would be the one who would remove the authority of that office from him. In his timing. And all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, foreshadowed Christ's work in in different ways. And we'll first look at the office of prophet. Tonight's class will be middle heavy, so we'll spend a lot more time on on the priestliness of Christ. But we will look at the, the office of prophet. I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> As was mentioned, a prophet is the man who spoke God's words to the people. He was God's spokesperson. And for each of these offices, we'll examine the Old Testament office rather briefly, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time on the nature of Christ's office. So let's first examine the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God remains within the tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Should you build me a house for my dwelling? In verse 8, now then, this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I myself took you from the pasture, from 
following the sheep to be leader over my people Israel, and the prophecy continues. Now, our focus tonight at this moment isn't necessarily on the prophecy itself here, but rather the one speaking it, Nathan, or rather God through Nathan, Nathan the prophet, as the Hebrew text reflects. He was an office holder. He wasn't only just a gifted man. He was a chosen man. He was, he was set apart as God's prophet in this time period. He played a significant part in David's life, as, as you well know from, from the story. The word of the Lord did not come to David directly here, did it? It came to Nathan the prophet, who then faithfully spoke the word of the Lord to David. And you'll notice in the text, when he didn't consult the Lord at first, God corrected him immediately and said, go, go say what I say to David. Nathan's just one example of one of these men. The reason I've chosen him and this text here, just as an illustration, is because we're going to look at the prophecy Nathan speaks to David in 2 Samuel 7 later on when we get to the office of king. There are many other anointed and designated prophets in Israel's history. Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Hosea, Zechariah are examples. And these men were not perfect, as we know through the account of Jonah. They weren't always liked, as we know through the accounts of Elijah. And they were not always listened to as we know through the accounts of, say, Jeremiah. But their faithfulness was not attributed to how the people responded to God's words, but rather that their faithfulness was attributed to the fact that they spoke God's words, even if God, what God had to say wasn't popular. And sometimes God's revealed word to them wasn't a comprehensive revelation. Prophecies often built on one another throughout time. God would reveal one piece to one prophet and then the next piece to another and and so on. And the prophets themselves sometimes didn't even have the whole picture. Specifically, when it came to the Messiah, we saw last week in, in 1 Peter 1, verse 11, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets individually didn't have the whole picture of what the Messiah would do and accomplish fully. So, Peter says, they searched and inquired about these prophecies. They researched, they investigated them. They wanted to know fully what God was going to do through the Messiah. They were just God's spokesmen. They weren't granted omniscience. They were just telling the people what God told them. And the first major prophet, of course, was was Moses, the writer of the the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. And after Moses, there was a succession of other prophets who would speak God's words and also write God's words. In fact, many of the prophetic utterances of the prophets became Scripture. Here's what Moses predicts before his death in Deuteronomy 18. Hopefully you can see that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. To him you will listen. This is in in accordance with everything that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, 
saying, Do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God again, and do not let me see this great fire anymore, or I will die. And the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything I command him. So Moses predicts here that at at some point after his death, another prophet like himself would come. He is not referring to Elijah or Samuel or Isaiah here. He is referring to the messianic prophet, the one who would be the very word from God. Both, Both the Old Testament and New Testament treat this passage as a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to the one who would, who would reveal God and lead his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophetic office in the Old Testament pointed to what Christ would accomplish. So, so now let's look at the nature of, of Christ's prophetic ministry. When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually is not primarily viewed as a prophet. There are many who think he's only a prophet, but the Bible doesn't treat him that way. Prophetic ministry, essentially, was was not his only function, but it was a function. We see clearly that a prophetic office is what he fulfilled, just in his titles. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw way back in our first class that a title of Christ is the Word. The Word became flesh, so we know John is referring to the incarnate Christ here. He is the very Word of God. But he not only spoke God's words, which he did, but he revealed God to us in himself. In other words, he was far superior to that of any other prophet, even a prophet like Moses. Hebrews 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus was not only a messenger of revelation from God like Moses and the other prophets, but he was the source of revelation from God. He was the word He not only spoke God's words, but he revealed God to us in himself, in his very person. This is something no other human prophet did or was able to do. The author of Hebrews here, in in Hebrews 3, is not saying Moses was bad. In Jewish tradition, Moses was revered as the greatest prophet. He's saying here that as great as Moses was, guess who's better? Guess who's more superior? Guess who's worthy of more glory than even Moses? Jesus is. He is worthy of more glory. Jesus Christ is the one about whom the prophecies of the Old Testament were made. He is the one whom all the prophets of the Old Testament prefigured in their speech and in their actions. So here's here's the takeaway. Christ fulfills the office of prophet by revealing God to us in himself. Christ fulfills the office of prophet by revealing God to us in himself. The office of of prophet. Next is the office of of priest. The second office that we'll see Christ holding is that of priest, and specifically, I would add, high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, 
the priests were appointed by God to offer sacrifices. Their function was a bit different than that of a, of a prophet. They also offered prayers and praises to God on behalf of the people, which would make them, in a way, acceptable before God so they can come in his presence just in a limited type of way. And we've looked at the priesthood a little bit when we examined the theme of atonement in the Old Testament. But our focus then was on the sacrifices. Our focus tonight is on the guys themselves, the priests. Exodus 28. Bring forward to yourself your brother Aaron and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to serve as priest to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar... Aaron's sons, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall, you shall speak to all the skillful people who I'm endowed with the spirit of wisdom, they sh- and they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may serve as priest to me. So like the prophets, the priests were, were designated. They were set apart. They were known among the people. They weren't self-appointed. And their role was of paramount importance in the religious life of God's people. Aaron, we see, and his sons were involved in the priesthood being set up, as well as the entire tribe of Levi. And again, they did not appoint themselves into this role. They they were selected by God, and the law defined their duties. They were to wear special clothing according to God's instructions, as we see in in this short text. They were to be from a specific tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. There were the priests, and there was the high priest. All the priests did the regular daily upkeep and order of the tent of meeting, and actually made the sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. Because remember, the people couldn't approach God themselves. And the high priest in particular oversaw the Day of Atonement, in which he entered the Holy of Holies to make atonement on behalf of the people. He did that once a year. And even when he did that, he would slip in for a moment, and the room was smoked up so he couldn't see anything. So there's still a level of barrier between him and God there. And we've already spent some time examining the the regulations for the sacrifices, what they were to be, for what type of sin issue, how frequently they were to, to make them how the priests were actually to to carry out the sacrifice of the animal up there on the altar. We examined some of those texts in in a previous class, so I won't put you through that again. Don't worry. But we remember that the priests were essentially butchers, weren't they? They spent all day sacrificing animals. They also would offer prayers and praises to God on behalf of the people as well. They were an integral part in the worship of the nation. And they were probably happy to take a break from the butchering to pray and to offer praises. The sacrificial system in particular was an ongoing daily ministry. It had to keep going so God's wrath would be put off. The priest's work of sacrifice never stopped in the Levitical system. It never stopped. Remember that. And of course, this system became unnecessary in Christ's atonement as he provided the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice in himself. In the New Testament, Christ becomes our great high priest and makes this Levitical order of priesthood obsolete. His priesthood is a bit different 
than that of the Levitical priesthood. So let's look at the nature of Christ's priesthood. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll focus some of our attention tonight on a few verses in Hebrews 7. The priesthood of Christ is a, is a major theme, a major theme in the book of Hebrews. You want to get to know Jesus and, and what he does, study the book of Hebrews. And this was a text we briefly looked at, actually, a few weeks ago. It's Hebrews 7, and our, our focus tonight is going to be verses 23 through 28. Starting in verse 23, Now many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, Christ, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. In many ways, chapter 7 is one of the focal points, if not the focal point, in the book of Hebrews. And here in these short verses, we have a three-part examination of Christ's superior priesthood. These are the ways in which Christ's priesthood is distinct and superior to the Levitical priesthood. First, his priesthood is permanent, and I believe I have this in your handout. His priesthood is permanent. So verse 23 reviews what is previously stated earlier in Hebrews 7, namely that the Levitical priests stopped being priests when they died. Obviously, a dead priest couldn't do the priestly ministry anymore. And so it was passed to the next next person. The Levitical priesthood was hereditary, meaning that priestly mantle was passed down through the family line. So, granddaddy was a priest. Dad and all, all your uncles were a priest. You and your brothers are priests and your sons will be priests, and and so forth. They were all from the tribe of Levi. There were no priests in Israel outside the tribe of Levi. Now, you remember Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So his priesthood could not be in this same type of order. He could not be a a Levitical priest. And so the priesthood of Christ would have been a strange concept for the Hebrew believers, who was the target audience of this this letter in Hebrews 7. And so the author of Hebrews explains in verses 1 through 22 of chapter 7 that Christ's priesthood was from the order of Melchizedek, not of the Levitical order. Hebrews 7, verse 17, For it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to do a full exposition of Hebrews 7 in addition to everything else we're looking at tonight. So to sum it up, first of all, who is this Melchizedek? Verses 1 to 2 are kind of a summary of the account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, verse 18. 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him, him being Abraham, and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And then Abraham responds with gestures of respect to this, to this Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was a king priest over ancient Jerusalem in Abraham's day. That's, that's Salem here. And this was, of course, before God's people inherited the land. So pagan peoples occupied this area. Melchizedek means righteous king. And his superior and respected status is demonstrated in several ways in Genesis 14 and in Hebrews 7. But the most important part of this Genesis 14 passage that I'm showing you, just a snippet, is the fact that the passage says more than one time that Melchizedek served and praised and was a priest to God Most High. God Most High. This is a name for God. El Elyon which means sovereign Lord. The writer of Genesis is being very specific about what God Melchizedek is serving, El Elyon. This is to tell us that Melchizedek wasn't a priest for a pagan god. He didn't serve a Canaanite god like the other kings in the area would have, like the king of Sodom. He served the one true God, El Elyon, the most high God. He was a priest of God, and he was a king too. He ruled his people. So this was a royal priesthood. And this Melchizedek was a great and respected priest. And his greatness was connected to his service to the one true God in the midst of overwhelming paganism. So that's who Melchizedek is. Back to Hebrews 7. There were two things about the order of Melchizedek that separated it from the Levitical priesthood. First, it was not bound by heredity. So the family line didn't matter. The mantle of priestliness was not passed through a family line like Aaron and his sons in the Levitical priesthood. And second, it wasn't bound by the death of the priest. Aaron's priestliness stopped when he died because he was dead, right? Numbers 20 reveals the details of Aaron's death in part to signify that Aaron was no longer a priest. His priestliness ceased with his death and then was picked up by the next person in line. This dynamic is not reflected in the order of Melchizedek. The the Old Testament doesn't record Melchizedek's family line or his date of death. That's intentional. The priesthood of Christ is, is compared to Melchizedek's order in that particular way. So according to Hebrews 7, Jesus was not a Levitical priest under the old Mosaic law. He's a Melchizedekian priest who supersedes the old Mosaic law. He didn't destroy the law. He fulfilled the conditions of the law. And this would have been monumental for the Hebrew believers because they had a particular psalm in their minds, which we'll look at in a moment. Now, at this point, we have to be careful I do not think that the scripture would submit to us that Christ is a better Melchizedek or that Melchizedek himself personally foreshadowed Christ. I don't think scripture reflects that. Christ's priesthood is related to the order 
of Melchizedek. His priesthood is in, in the same vein as that order in the two ways we just unpacked, not Melchizedek himself personally. So I think we have to make that distinction too. Remember, Jesus' family line had everything to do with his ability to claim the throne of David. But it had absolutely nothing to do with his ability to access God as a priest or as a mediator for God's people because he's the son of God. He can approach God. The priesthood of Christ isn't dependent upon his family line. It's also not dependent upon his death because Jesus is alive like we saw last time. The angel told the women, do not be afraid because I know who you're looking for. Jesus, who was crucified, he is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. He is the living, resurrected, and ascended Christ. And in this context of Hebrews 7, this means, guess what? His priesthood doesn't end. It didn't end with his death, because Jesus is still alive. Verse 24 in Hebrews 7 says that he holds his office of priesthood permanently. He didn't stop being the mediator between us and God when he died or when he ascended and left the earth. He still is. And because his priesthood is permanent, unending, therefore, verse 25, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. This word always is emphasized twice in this verse to further reinforce the permanence of his priesthood. Christ is continually functioning in this capacity. He always brings those to God who come to him. He always intercedes for us. Not only this is continuous, but I think there's also the idea of it never failing. His his ministry as high priest never fails. He always does this. Nothing thwarts Christ. Christ's priestly function. There is no person too difficult for Jesus to save. No sinner too far gone for the atonement to reach if they turn to him. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. He is always able to save those who come to God through him. His priesthood is is permanent. Next, his priesthood is holy. Priesthood is holy. Verses 26 and 27 reflect to us that his priesthood is holy. His holy character is another proof of his superior priesthood. No other man has the character of the Son. This is what qualifies him to permanently offer atonement for us. This is the kind of high priest we need, author of Hebrews says. And this is who Christ is. We need one who is holy. Innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is the spotless Lamb of God. The author of Hebrews provides a list of qualities that are applied to the holiness of Christ's priesthood. And regarding this list, MacArthur points out that the first quality, holy, relates to his relationship with God. The second quality, innocent, relates to his relationship with man. The next two qualities, undefiled and separated from sinners, relates to essentially his relationship within himself. And the last quality relates to his his status, which is explained more in verse 28. He is holy. This is a holistic obedience to God. He is without the pollution of sin. 
He has never sinned. He never passively omitted commands from God, and he never actively transgressed God, meaning he's never disobeyed a single command. He never did the opposite of God's word. And an implication here is that we are to mimic the Lord in this particular way. We are called to pursue holiness. We're called to put our sins to death in obedience to the Lord and strive to be like Him. He's our representative. He's our example. We are to be holy like He is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Peter roots this instruction in the Old Testament in Leviticus 11. This is a universal and reinforced command for God's people for all time. Being holy like God is holy is not relegated only to the Mosaic law. As the Old Testament saints before Christ were commanded to be holy like their God and the law instructed them how, we as the church as well are commanded to be holy like our God in Christ. And the New Testament shows us how. He is innocent, literally without malice. This has to do with his motives. He's completely without malice intentions. He's not to blame for any sin. He's not the cause of anyone else's sin, actively or passively. He is completely free of guilt. He is undefiled. He is free from any contamination that sin might, might bring. 1 Peter 1 describes this like a lamb that doesn't have any kind of defects. No missing limbs, no patchy fur from some kind of mange, no bite marks from a wolf, no scars from mistakes of the past, no external sin has internally polluted him, totally free from sin's defilement. He's separated from sinners. Now, don't think of this in terms of of physical proximity, like an Amish person that's separated from society. Think of this in terms of there being a distinct difference between Jesus, the Son of God, and sinners, those who he represents. He is fully and truly man, but he is also fully and truly God. There's a separation there between him and sinners. He, He had no sin nature. He had no sin nature which would cause acts of sin. He is separated from sinners in that way. And lastly, he is exalted above the heavens. This refers to, I think, his status as the risen, ascended, glorified Son of God. Back in Hebrews 4, verse 14, Jesus is described as passing through the heavens. He's characterized not by what is earthly, but by what is heavenly. The title Son of God is applied to him there. His status is heavenly, not earthly. He is defined by divine permanence, not temporary earthliness. And this divine status is is expounded on more in verse 28. But first in verse 27, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. We've seen this in our class already, haven't we? Whenever a Levitical priest sinned, he was required to make a sacrifice for himself first. And whenever the people sinned, he had to make a sacrifice for them every time on their behalf. This could be a daily occasion, multiple times a day. And of course, regularly once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and the people. 
Jesus had no sin and no pollution from sin. So he didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself, the passage says. And his sacrifice on behalf of his people was his very self, not an animal. And it was a once-for-all atonement because of his holiness. Another sacrifice did not need to be made after his, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which needed to be consistently repeated. Christ's sacrifices is permanent, once for all. It can be that because of the qualities that we just briefly looked at in Hebrews 7. You know, there's a reason we don't have priests. Christians do not need human priests to make atonement for them. Christians don't need human priests to impart to them salvific grace as you partake in certain church elements. We have a great high priest already who has provided atonement once for all and who always intercedes for us right now. And through him, we can approach the throne of grace. We have access to God through Jesus. We can serve God with spiritual offerings, the priesthood of all believers. This is why the New Testament never ever tells the church to have priests. You'll never see it in the New Testament. This is the point being driven home in our passage in Hebrews 7. Christians are under a new priesthood, one in whom the Lord himself functions as our great high priest. So his priesthood is permanent, his priesthood is holy, and as I just mentioned, his priesthood is divine. There is divinity about his priesthood, meaning he is not merely another human priest. The very Son of God is our high priest. God takes this task upon himself for his people. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Through the Mosaic law, weak men were appointed to the task of the priesthood. Now, this weakness doesn't mean necessarily they were physically frail or falling apart or elderly. It just means they they were human. They were sinners like the people they mediated for. They were bound by death as well. They were weak in that way contrasted with the one who has been perfected forever. Jesus is ultimately superior because he is the Son. God confirms the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as high priest through the promise of the oath. This oath was discussed in verses 20 and 21 of of chapter 7. And a moment ago, I said these Hebrew believers had a psalm in their minds. Here's the psalm where the oath is coming from. Psalm 110. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever, you are a priest like Melchizedek. So often we only look at verse 1 of Psalm 110. Let's look at more verses of Psalm 110. 
Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. God confirms that Christ is the Messiah, his high priest in verse 4, and it's a royal priesthood. You see kingship and dominion language in these verses, and you see the priesthood. A priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but whose lineage is from the line of David. A king who will rule his people and function as their priest as well, as their mediator. So you see, almost like a merging of these Old Testament offices and the Messiah. So let's briefly examine the tasks of Christ's superior priesthood. First, he offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. We've extensively discussed this, so just one more word on this task from the text with it that we just looked at in Hebrews 7. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. This is all past tense. Therefore, his ministry now is not that of sacrifice. It's of advocacy. He, in the past tense, offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. He offered himself. Presently now, as we looked at, he brings us to God and he intercedes for us always. Christ fulfilled the office of priest since he offered a sacrifice to God on our behalf. And he himself was the sacrifice. But his priesthood has not ended. He does more than this in his priestly office. He also brings us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus speaks to Thomas here in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is reconciliation language. Remember that from the first class? Being brought to God, not as enemies, but as friends. Through Christ and his work, you were at enmity with God. Now you are at a positional peace with God. He has brought you to God. He reconciles us to God and restores that which was broken in the garden. He is the good shepherd who pursues and retrieves his sheep. And he is the exclusive reconciler. No one comes to the Father except through him. There are not many ways to God. One. There is one way. Only through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus. Again, only Christ is our mediator. He resolved the conflict. He restores peace between God and sinners. There is only one mediator between us and God. Again, the Bible does not affirm any kind of universalism. In our 1 Timothy Verse here, there is only one God and one mediator between us and God. Human beings come to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The whole scripture is in unison about this. Christ is the only Savior. He is the only one qualified for this high priestly task of mediating, of reconciliation, and of atonement. You do not get to God except through Christ. He is the one who provides that reconciliation. He brings us to God. He also continually intercedes for us. 
The other priestly function, like we've mentioned a few times already tonight, is that of intercession, of advocacy. Scripture would reflect to us clearly that Christ continually intercedes for us in his current ministry. Hebrews 7.25, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. The Apostle Paul affirms this same point in Romans 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The word for intercede or intercession here in both of these texts refer to to bringing a petition to a king on behalf of someone. There are some that argue that that Christ's intercession for believers really only constitutes his remaining in the presence of the Father, just as a kind of continual reminder to the Father that, that Christ's substitutionary atonement paid the price for sin, like God needs to be reminded of that. So so this view would state that Jesus is is not making specific intercession for individual needs, but rather it's just kind of a generalized macro-representative type ministry. He's just kind of there, God sees him and remembers, oh, the atonement is is sufficient. Um, I don't believe that the scripture would reflect this view. Um, In both of these texts, the word for intercede is just not that of general representation. Its sense is clearly that of a specific petition being brought on an individual's behalf. It's the same sense as is found in texts like Acts 25 when Festus says to King Agrippa, you see this man about whom the Jewish people petitioned me, very specific. Also Romans 11 when Paul references Elijah pleading with God against Israel, petitioning God, again, very specific, not general representation. So we can, can, can conclude that Scripture reflects Jesus is continually in the presence of the Father making specific requests and bringing specific petitions to God on our behalf. He is functioning in a kind of macro-representative way, but specifically he's petitioning the Father for his individual people, for their needs. This is the role that, that Christ is uniquely fit for as he is our perfect representative. He is fully God and fully man. Only the omnipresent, omniscient Son of God could petition the Father so comprehensively for all of his people simultaneously. If you want a taste of this, just listen to this intercessory prayer of of Christ on, on behalf of all believers in John 17. Christ prays, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know you sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, this world has not known you. However, I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and they will make it known. So the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. That's not a quote from a theologian. That's the words of the Lord 
to the Father. This is what Christ always does for his people. He advocates before God. He makes petitions to God on our behalf. There's only one who can function in this way. No other is qualified for this advocacy. Wayne Grudem says, because he became and continues to be truly man, he has the right to to represent us before God, and he can express his petitions from the viewpoint of a sympathetic high priest, one who understands by experience what we go through. This should give us great encouragement. He always prays for us according to the Father's will. One more quote, uh, this one from Louis Burkhoff. I think I have this one in your handout. Burkhoff says, it, it is a consoling thought that Christ is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which are not even present in our minds and which often we neglect to include in our prayers and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we don't even notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. This is what Jesus is doing for us, even now, in his office of priest. In the third office, finally we'll examine, of course, is the office of king. Kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8. There were many years in Israel's history in which no king ruled over Israel. Israel was a theocracy ruled through prophets like Moses and then through the judges. You know that, that book, those stories. The judges would often get them out of trouble. They got themselves into because they did what was right in their own eyes. You see that phrase over and over again in the book of Judges. There was no king. The nation of Israel was to be unique, set apart from the other nations, to be a light ruled directly by God. And at this point in their history, in 1 Samuel 8, they became tired of their uniqueness. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, prophet, at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds that they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods. So they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen. They will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and and commanders of fifties and some to do his plowing and to gather his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment of his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields 
your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials. He'll also take your male servants and your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there should be a king over us, so that we may be like the other nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men, Go every man to his city. When the people of Israel entered the land, they were surrounded by Canaanite nations who were led by kings. During the time of the judges, they were enslaved by nations that were led by kings. As Israel lived and functioned in a land surrounded by kings, a desire arose to be ruled by a king because they thought that that would be a more effective means of protection than what they had up to that point, and what they had up to that point was the Lord himself. And like God said, they rejected him. If you read Deuteronomy 17, you know that God knew the people would desire this. This wasn't a shock to God. And even though their motive was contrary to God's will, God granted their request for a king. This was a very consequential demand that the people made of the Lord. Samuel warned them that a king would would take their sons and draft them for war. That the king would take their daughters as his servants, as his slaves. They would be taxed by this king, some of them taxed into oblivion. The best of their personal resources would be appropriated for the king's use. Their personal freedoms would be totally restricted. And nevertheless, the people demanded a king. And they got what they wanted, and all of those things happened, not just in Saul. Because if you know Israel's history, you know that the kingly line wasn't exactly godly every step of the way. There were some good kings, but a lot of bad ones. This is what God said would happen. But the people, in their stubborn sinfulness, wanted it anyway. God used their stubborn sinfulness, ultimately for his glory, to put the Son of God as their king there would be a Messiah king who would come. God would rule him again. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Son of man here clearly referring to Messiah. We've, we've seen that title of Christ. He represents true humanity as it must be in God's everlasting kingdom. And authority is attached to this title. Authority over temporal nations, as seen here in Daniel's vision. Authority over spiritual matters as well in Matthew 9 and Matthew 16. We'll see this title pop up again here in a minute. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This prophecy from Isaiah, the virgin's child will be the son of David with rights to the Davidic throne. 
the Redeemer, the Messiah, would be the King. The government will be on His shoulders. The Son will rule over the nations of the world. So let's look at the nature of Christ's kingship. The nature of Christ's kingship is directly rooted in the Old Testament. There's actually not too much else to say about it. We've um, unpacked a number of texts throughout the class that, that feature the kingship of Christ. Specifically, it's rooted in the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are finished, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the passage we often refer to as the Davidic covenant. Nathan the prophet speaks these words of the Lord to King David, this covenant. The throne of your descendant will be built by God for his name. His reign will be established forever. And he'll be a specific king from a specific family line. In this passage as well in verse 14, God says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And of course we know who this is, this descendant. Christ. According to the genealogy in Matthew 1, also Luke 1, he is of the line of David. Christ is often referred to as the son of David, which is a messianic title as well we've seen. It was understood that the Messiah king would always also be the Davidic king. Christ fulfills this office by ruling over the church as well as over all creation. In his kingship, we see two elements, that of ruler and judge. Christ rules as king. He reigns. John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Christ's initial ministry was not to establish his earthly kingdom but rather to, re- to redeem individual sinners to be citizens of his kingdom. Jesus is saying here that his kingdom is not connected to any earthly, political, national, or international organization or institution. His kingdom does not have its origin in the world system. If it were, he says, he would have fought. He would be fighting, just like the other kings of the earth would fight to keep their power. Christ's kingdom does not have its origins in the methods of man, but in the work of the Son. Not conquering nations, but conquering sin in the lives of individual image bearers. That's how he builds his kingdom. He builds his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And at his second coming, he will return as a conquering king to establish the earthly form of his kingdom. His authority supersedes any earthly authority on the earth. Ephesians 1.20 He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus, the son of David, is the king, the king of kings. Lord of lords. He has been given a name that is above every name. He is above all other rulers. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is far above any authority on this earth. His power and dominion are supreme. He's the, he's the very master of creation. 1 Peter 3.22 Now that he's gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. 1 Peter 5.11 To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. His authority is greater than any authority on this earth. He is Lord over Joe Biden and Donald Trump. He is Lord over Russia and Ukraine. He is Lord over the Chinese Communist Party. His dominion is forever and ever. No other king or government or political party can claim this from Christ. And all of his enemies will one day be placed into subjection under his feet. He will reign supreme on the earth at his second coming. His first coming was as a suffering savior. His second coming, he'll be a conquering king who will reign unopposed and put an end to evil and evildoers. He will return as judge. Christ judges as king. Jesus will return to the earth with divine power and glory to judge the living inhabitants of the earth and all of the nations. The prophet Zephaniah explicitly portrays the judgment of the earth through the Messiah. Christ is described as a mighty one in Zephaniah's writings. Jesus himself said this during his earthly ministry at his first advent in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man, there's that title again, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John five twenty seven, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, the title Son of Man is often used in conjunction with the right of Christ to judge mankind and rule the earth, like we saw in Daniel 7. There's coming a time of reward for believers in the kingdom. But this text in Matthew 16, the Lord is primarily concerned with the reward that's given to unbelievers. And it's not a reward you want to be a recipient of. The Father has already given all authority to the Son to rule and to execute judgment. Absolute sovereign authority to judge as he is the Son of Man. This judgment is the the subject matter of much of the book of of Revelation, as you know. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. True to his word, Jesus will return to the earth. Here the armies of the Antichrist, as well as the Antichrist himself, are defeated. Satan's bound for a thousand years in Christ's millennial kingdom. The earthly form of his kingdom begins. At the end of that time frame, another judgment of the king will occur far more severely. Satan rouses up one more attempt at overthrowing Christ, fails, and he is cast into the lake of fire, and then this in Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Here, you do not want to be found standing before this great white throne. 
you don't want to be found here. All the unrighteous will be judged here, and all will be found wanting, as this judgment is exclusively for the enemies of God. The, the king judges. And after this final judgment, the new heaven and the new earth will be inaugurated. The corruption of sin, Christ will erase completely as creator. He'll, he will remake what has been what has been broken, sin itself utterly eliminated with Christ, the Son rectifying fully what was lost in the garden. The power of the serpent was broken at the cross, and then Satan himself will be removed from the scene permanently. And we as believers will serve King Jesus for eternity, free of sin and everything sin causes. What a day that will be. And so we've come full circle from where we began the class in Genesis 3 with this proto-messianic promise. Remember, God says this on the eve of the first sin, and I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Again, the power of the serpent was broken at the cross and through the resurrection, through the work of Christ, and there's coming a day when Satan himself will be permanently cast away from the scene permanently. The Creator himself, the Word, Christ, the Son, will remake what was, what was lost in the garden. And we look forward to that day. But now, we live here, don't we? In the power of the resurrection, as Pastor Brian's been telling us in Romans 6, and as we saw last week in our class so we look to Jesus and what he, has, what he has accomplished. I hope this class has, has encouraged you personally. It's encouraged me as I've studied. I hope you can better look to, to Christ for your needs and for your strength. I hope also you're encouraged to take these theological realities to those around you who need Jesus. God is slow to wrath, but he's abundant in, in patience, taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Christ... Fully God, fully man has come as the Messiah of mankind to redeem us from sin, to propitiate God's wrath and to reconcile us to God. And his once for all work of atonement was sealed in the resurrection and his authority guaranteed in the ascension. And there'll be a day when the Lord returns in the same way he left. He'll return for us. And there'll be a day as well when the offer of redemption through him will be taken off the table for those who reject him. So... Take the excellencies of Christ to those in your circle of influence who are living for themselves, for the world, and for the devil so they might be made alive as you have been made alive. We live because he lives. He is the Lord. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, for revealing yourself to us um, in your Son, Lord, help us to always turn to you, Lord, for strength and for needs as we know you are advocating for us, even now, for needs that we don't even know we have, for dangers that are, that are just beyond the door that we don't even see that you guard us from. Lord, help us to look to you um, in our faith. Lord, help us take these truths to those around us who are dying in their sin. Help them see you most clearly, in Christ's name.